0: hey there everybody and welcome to one thing led to another this is a podcast all about storytelling namely the process in writing or telling a good story uh today we are joined by david wellington who has actually published over 20 books he's got his start writing zombie horror and then he has since moved to you know thriller suspense drama and is now working on a space opera series Um, He also has a bit of background writing comic books and in video games as well. So when it comes to story, this is a man who knows what he's talking about. And I can assure you of that fact after speaking with him. I think one of the main things that... I at least took away from my conversation with Dave that I think would be valuable, valuable for you all is the idea of confidence when it comes to storytelling. And what I like about this lesson is it's not specific to writing, which, is, which these lessons seem to be curtailed towards simply because we've been interviewing authors and writers. But the idea of confidence in storytelling, I think, is probably the m- single most important facet of it especially when it comes to a context like, say, the dinner table or even a wedding speech or something like that, is... Trusting within yourself to tell the good story and that you know what a good story is. That is something sort of fundamental about being human is the a love of stories. It's the reason it's, it's been a focal point of every culture in every single society everywhere throughout history. So your brain knows a good story when it hears it. And you just need to trust it when you have that. David also has several other great tr- tips and tricks throughout the entire um, episode. So I certainly... Hope that you get as much value out of it as I did, especially as an aspiring writer. I won't take up any more time from our guest Dave, and I thank you so much for joining me today. And please reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for any suggestions or ideas or feedback or criticisms. We we want it all. Also, I humbly ask that you drop by my website at noafinko.net for to look at any others of my projects that I'm working on they seem to be growing in number and uh, that's extremely exciting I think in addition to this podcast there's some store short stories some articles and some updates about the novel that I'm currently writing but regardless this is Dave Wellington thank you so much for listening and please enjoy Hello. Hello, Noah.
1: This is Noah. How are you doing, David? I'm all right. How are you?
0: Doing absolutely wonderful. Thank you for joining me today. So I think to just get us started off, if you could give us sort of like a a background into your career and your career as a writer and storyteller, I think that'd be a great place to start, especially for people who might be unfamiliar with your work.
1: My name is David Wellington, and I am the author of over 20 novels in horror, fantasy, science fiction, thriller. I've done comic books and video games as well, but my main focus is on books. And I got my start writing a horror novel called Monster Island, which is a story about zombies taking over the world. Um, I started out serializing that book online on a friend's blog, which I quickly took over. Uh, in 2003, and the idea was that I would present a short chapter three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and would read the comments on each chapter before I wrote the next one, so it was a sort of experiment in serialized storytelling, uh, and it worked. <laughs> I got enough readers from the serial that by a publisher, and it's been a... Pretty strange, right? Ever since I've been uh, full-time writer since 2005.
0: So I, let's start with uh, the serialization that you did there. how How did that? How did crafting the story work when you got almost immediate feedback as you were writing the story? What was that experience like?
1: It was an education. It was absolutely the best thing that ever could have happened to me in terms of, of learning how to write. It was, uh, you know, I've been writing since I was a kid submitting stories to magazines and anthologies. Um, I'd written some novels, but I'd never gotten anything published. And I was starting to despair. I was starting to think it was just never going to happen. So I moved to New York City, and I had a friend who had a blog, and he was tired of doing his blog. And this is the time when blogs were, uh, you know, in the limelight they were on the cover of Time magazine and everything else. And But he was getting tired of writing the blog. And so he said, why don't you put a book on my blog? You can just put whatever you want up there. No one's going to read it anyway. So we got together and we talked about what to do and how it would work. And I said, okay, well, you know, I'll I'll write a novel and I'll put it up on your blog, chapter by chapter. And I said, it'll take about six months to write it, you know, a couple months to do the research, whatever. And my friend, you know, we'd been drinking a little bit at dinner, and my friend <laughs> looked to me and he said, no, you start on Monday. And so uh it just sort of, you know, happened. It was, it was pretty crazy. I was not ready for it. Um, I did not know what I was doing. And I learned how I went. Uh, but yeah, in terms of the constant feedback, it was Great as well as terrifying. There was a moment when (laughs) I had a big plot twist coming up that I was sure was going to shock all my readers, and somebody in the comments just totally wrote out the plot twist, you know, predicting what was going to happen, Uh, and they were 100% horrifying. Oh, that's horrifying. horrifying. Yes. (laughs) So I had to change the entire plot of the novel, like, between Monday and Wednesday. Uh, It was... You know, because I, I, I was, it was a challenge, right? I'm not going to just uh, go ahead and prove this guy right. So I had to change the entire book, um, which actually made it a better book. I, that's the fascinating thing about this process was that all these little accidents were just they, – they made the book what it was. It was incredibly fun and nerve-wracking and a lot of work, uh, but, it, you know, I can't complain about how it paid off.
0: So would a lot of the feedback from your readers be about where, like, predictions, or would it be more so sort of critiques on what you were currently doing or what already happened in the book? And how much did they really shape what the novel came to be?
1: Well, the vast majority of the, of the comments were just positive feedback. They were just, you know, this is great, I'm loving it, keep going. Which is what every author needs to hear <laughs> all the time. And it's something you don't get when you are writing a book in your solitary office, or your cabin in the woods, or whatever. You are constantly doubting yourself and worrying that no one's going to want to read what you're writing. So for the most part, the comments were just there to, you know, keep me going. It was uh that was like the best part of it was just feeling like I was actually getting through to people, and I was actually, you know, writing something that people were enjoying. The so that was about eighty percent of the comments. Ten percent of them were predictions, or they were criticisms, which you know some of them were valid, and I took them to heart. Um, and say the other ten percent were people, you know, imagining things that were completely bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people, you know, thinking that I was gonna. I, I had so let me tell you the story. So I had this one uh, commenter who was probably my most prolific commenter. And he was this guy from Scotland who had a great sense of humor and was always leaving a little funny comments in the blog. But then one day he figured out that in uh, in the comments, I was replying to things uh, under the name Dave, (parentheses the author, close parentheses He figured out that he could register an account as Dave, the author, parentheses, states.
0: Oh, no. And
1: because of the way, the, because of the, way the, the commenting system worked, you could do that. And he, he created this, and he had a little avatar that looked exactly like me. And, he, and so one day, he just out of nowhere uh, commented that I was. For personal reasons, I was going to stop writing, and I would never do this again. And you know, <laughs> oh boy, oh boy, no, no one should come. No one should come back on Wednesday. And of course, directly below that is a comment from Dave, the author, in parentheses, saying, "No, this isn't true." <laughs> <Don't worry." laughs> uh, so yeah, there were, people had some fun with it. Uh, <laughs> there, was a, there were a bunch of pranks, and there were. Yeah, it was. It wasn't like you would expect today, where nobody swatted me or anything. But if there was a fair amount. it was a fair, fair amount of good natured fun. It
0: really sounds like you were writing in almost like the internet online community golden age, which was probably a blessing. I don't. I'm curious to see if this sort of serialization would work in today's environment.
1: Yeah, I mean people are still doing. It. People are still serializing stuff online. I, I don't know how I, you know just deal with it because. Sure. You know, the comments have gotten toxic over time. I mean, back then, it was a big party. In 2003, like even just, you know, 15 years ago, the Internet was... The, the kind of perception of the Internet was that it was this place where everybody was going to be entertained and have fun, and everybody was getting along with each other. And yeah, it was a great time. <laughs> and I, I really don't know if I could do it today. But... Um, You know, I think there are probably brave souls out there right now who are doing it. Uh, Certainly, you know, there are plenty of people who give as good as they get.
0: Transitioning a little bit here, I think one of the most interesting parts about you, Dave, is just... The breadth of your body of work And how varied you are When it comes to genre Can you kind of take me a little bit Through how you went from writing these you know, Zombie apocalypse novels To then vampires and werewolves And now you're on to space operas And stuff like that What What's with all the changes That you're going through here?
1: You know, it just It came from uh, when I was a kid I didn't recognize The differences between genres I mean, I knew that they existed I knew that some books were science fiction and some were fantasy. But it wasn't like I i didn't have one genre that I loved. I loved everything. So, like, I would read Stephen King novels. Because it was the 70s. So everybody read Stephen King novels. And I would read, uh, you know, science fiction because I loved science fiction. And, in fact, when I started Monster Island, my zombie book, I thought it was a science fiction novel. Um, it kind of the original impetus for the story was, the, I had this image of a guy in a spacesuit walking around Times Square in New York, uh, you know, and it was just completely empty. And that turned into this story about zombies. Uh, but, you know, I didn't think of myself as a horror writer at first. Uh, I just, I was a writer. And because that's what I'd always known. Now, today, you have people who, all the time will come up to me and they'll say, what are you working on now? And I'll say, it's a science fiction novel. And they'll say, oh, I don't like science fiction. And I'm like, how? They, you know, they like horror, but they don't like science fiction. They like fantasy, but they don't like horror, whatever. And, and it just, it always blows my mind. It's like, why, you know, there, there are so few really good books in the world. Why would you limit yourself to one tiny quarter of somebody's mm-hmm. marketing campaign, you know? Uh, so, for me, it's always just been, if an idea comes to me, I write it down, and I don't worry about the genre of it until I'm trying to sell it. So, to go from horror to fantasy for and then thrillers, and then science fiction. It was just natural for me.
0: Would you say almost that all your stories sort of incorporate those elements of those genres? I mean, every story that I've loved hasn't necessarily, might be labeled as, say, a thriller, but there's so many more elements. There's elements of romance. Sometimes there's elements of science fiction.
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, writing is writing, And, and there are certainly... Like, if you're intending to write a horror novel, you're going to write it slightly different than you would write a fantasy novel. But the differences really are slight. Uh, I like to think of horror as basically pessimistic fantasy. You know, it, it's a <laughs> world where there is magic and the supernatural, but it wants to kill you, uh, you know, as opposed to fantasy where maybe it's more benign. Um, you know, and science fiction, so much of science fiction is just fantasy. Like, uh, with the exception of truly hard science fiction, which is just so hard to write, um, you know, but like Star Wars, it, it's not a science fiction story. There's no science in Star Wars. It's, mm-hmm. it's fantasy, mm-hmm. you know. And I think we get kind of caught up in these very black and white definitions for these things. Uh, and to our detriment, I think that, you know, I'm a science fiction fan. I love hard science fiction. I love The Martian. I also love Star Wars. They are two completely mm-hmm. different genres, uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't turn my nose up at either one of them, you know?
0: So then what would you say, with your novels in particular, what, what would you say is consistent through them, even though the, the genre itself may be different?
1: Well, my voice is consistent. I, I, you know, I spend a lot of time finding a specific sort of style that I write in. Uh, and I think that anyone who enjoyed my work enjoys it partly for that voice. I, I have, you know, it's not necessarily what I set out to do, but I've kind of developed this, this sort of style of this is very fast paced, you know, action heavy, emotionally overwrought kind of <laughs> operatic style that I, people seem to really respond to. And so whether that's wizards, you know, dueling on top of in mountaintops or whether that's astronauts fighting aliens, uh, you know, the books all kind of have that same sort of, you know, voice that the readers can just get lulled in by. And, you know, the thing about a story is that getting somebody to listen to a story or read a story is the hard part. Once they're in the story, if you know what you're doing, you can hold the reader's attention. That's not a problem. <laughs>
0: you
1: know, uh, it's, it's convincing people that they want to read this thing in the first place.
0: Yeah, so th- then building off of that, how do you go about holding on to that reader's attention? How do, how do you keep, you know, initial really engaging premise from sort of going stale or, or taking that, you know, allure and then just trying to spread it out for too long?
1: You lie to people, you manipulate them, and you betray their trust.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's what
1: writing is all about. Uh, and I'm being a little facetious, but not much. It's, uh, you know, the job of the writer is to build suspense and to keep the reader wanting more. And whatever else a writer is trying to accomplish, you need to do that. You need to be able to, t- to tell yourself that, you know, I know what the reader is thinking at this particular moment in the story, and they're completely wrong uh because what people want is surprises they want they want fresh stuff and you know that's not true for all readers is an interesting thing i've been discovering recently is there are people out there who love spoilers who want to know what the story is going to be about before they start reading it and there are people who mm-hmm. and you know sometimes that's your, it's 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 like if you go to see a magic show there are people in the audience who just want to be amazed And there are other people in the audience who are looking in every corner, you know, they're looking at what the magician is not doing, and they're looking at, you know, behind them and around the theater, because they want to know how the trick is done. And so there there are a lot of readers who, well, there are a lot of readers who are writers, you know, who want to be writers, or they want to learn something about writing, and so they're reading to see how the the sausage is made, to, you know, add another metaphor here. Uh, But... (laughs) There are other readers who do want to be surprised and shocked and, you know, who want to go on this gripping ride. And then there are, you know, there are some readers who just want that willful suspension of disbelief. They just want to go live in a different world for a while. But I think everybody enjoys suspense. Everybody enjoys feeling like not knowing what's coming next. And, you know, even the ones who want to guess, who want to spoil it, who want to figure out the twist... Um, if you ca- if you get if you catch them unawares, they still love that. <laughs> you know, so I think that the trick is with building suspense is you have to kind of manage the reader's expectations. And you can't just completely lie to them. You can't say, you know, that you can't just create a character who who says, Oh, this is this story is going to end really well. I'm going to be super happy, and then kill that character off on the next page. That feels very true. But on some level, you do need to kind of foreshadow and, you know, build in little hints about what's going to happen, and then always subvert the expectation.
0: Hmm. So then let's build off that idea of character. So when you have a premise that you enjoy do you immediately go to building the characters to help expand upon that premise how do, how do you go about making characters that readers not only love but readers also hate
1: that's it, it's uh you know it's different for every book and i used to have a process that i liked which was i would come up with the ending of the book first i would come up with the final image in the book and it could just be a, a picture of something happening, or it could be uh, an emotion or whatever. And then I would think, okay, so the process would be, okay, I know how this book ends. Who is there at the ending? And that would be my protagonist, you know, and, and possibly the antagonist as well. Uh, and then I would think, okay, how did they get to this point? And that's how I would get my plot. And so I kind of, like, outline backwards from the ending. That doesn't always work there are some stories that are much more about the character than are about the plot. And in those cases, you really need to kind of think about the characters first uh, and create characters that people are going to want to get to know. And in those cases, you know, there are a lot of different exercises you can do. You can have the character write a letter to their grandmother, you know, especially if the grandmother never appears in the story. (laughs) You know, you you can sort of live with them for a while and get to know them before you even start writing their story. But I I often find that the best characters are, are kind of the broadest characters. They're the ones who have, you know, you can give an elevator pitch for the character where you can say, okay, this is you know, so many protagonists in stories are, well, he's a, you know, guy who's just turning 35 and he went to college and he lives in a midwestern town, whatever. That character is going to be forgotten Two pages in the, the more the interesting characters the ones that people will really gravitate towards are the ones like you know this is a character who was abducted by a UFO when he was five uh, and maybe the story isn't even about UFOs like <laughs> you already want to know more about that character and so I find that it often getting too granular and too deep with the characters early on uh, just makes them so Average and boring because you want your characters to do well. You want them to succeed. You want them to be happy. And that's not what you need to do to write a great book. You need to actually torture the characters and make them miserable uh, and force them to find their way out of the problems you create for them. So I think it's often better to start off with just like a one sentence description of a character. And the more bizarre it is, the better. And you can always change that later. You can always dial it down if you need to. Uh, but it's just, it just—it gives you so much, just you know, impetus to start with, and just inertia that will carry that character through a story.
0: So when you're when you're developing these characters and you got your premise and you've worked backwards from from the end game, as you said, when things aren't necessarily working out too well, how do you how do you push through that? And then at what point do you just say, okay, maybe this premise isn't going to work for this novel now? And then do you shelve it or or how do you come about that decision when you realize that maybe all the pieces aren't going to fall into place?
1: Well, there are two things you can do in that case, and it depends on where you are in your deadline, uh, you know, where you know what, how close you are to having to turn something in. In the early days, the, you can absolutely just start over, and I do this all the time. I can't remember the last book I wrote that is actually has the same characters and the same plot that I started with. Um, you know, those first couple days, you're just like, "Oh, this is a terrible idea," and it's got plenty of time to turn it around. Um, often, though, that's actually a bad idea, because when you're that close to a story, all you can see is the flaws. Uh, you, know, you are your own worst critic, as they say. It's, it's a cliche because it's true. And I find that what is, what is much more productive and useful is when you are closer to a deadline, uh, like, say, when you're two-thirds of the way through a story, and you realize you don't have time to start over, which is a terrifying thing. But the absolute best thing to do in that case is just keep going. It's so much better to finish a thing than to stop in the middle, even if the thing that you finish feels terrible. Because often two weeks later, you'll go back and reread it and realize, oh, it's actually pretty good. You know, I was just panicking. Or you'll go back and you'll read it and say, oh, I was completely right. This is trash. Um, But you can fix that in the editing process. So I think the main thing is that when you get stuck like that, when you start doubting yourself, and it happens to every writer with every project from now until the end of time. uh, Yeah. When you get stuck like that and you, you just think you can't go on, you have to just keep going on.
0: Very, very cool. So, When it comes to creating like a series like you are currently doing, how do you go about, because I assume that you take certain plot points and you have to try to figure out which, say, book or which act or which part it should fit in. So then how do you go about organizing that? Do you outline the entire series as you think it's going to be? Or do you kind of let the story, do you focus on that first bit and then let it build from there on out? So
1: it depends where you are in the series. The first book, when you're reading the first book of a series or a trilogy or anything, you absolutely cannot think about book two. It is the worst, worst thing you can possibly do is start thinking about book two while you're still writing book one. Book one must stand on its own. And there, this book is going to go forward through history. People will be reading it 5,000 years from now. They may not have book two, you know. It's often often the case that the first book in a series is the one that sells the best, and so the second, the second book, the third book, etc., may go out of print, while the first book remains. And so the first book really kind of has to be a standalone. Um, the other reason to do it that way is because it's very, very tempting to not resolve your plot in book one. Because you can just, you know, keep it going. Why not? make a 25-book series that is all one continuous story. That doesn't work. (laughs) Nobody's going to stick around for that. Uh, You know, the first book needs to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, you can always leave room at the end for a second book, but you don't want to even commit to that because you don't even know if you're going to get to write that second book. So, yeah. Now, when you're writing book two and book three and book seven and book 95, yeah, you absolutely think about where this is going, and you really do need an outline. Uh, you especially need to know how it's going to end. And I think we see this more and more often with book series that outlive their authors and just how disappointing that is for the readers. Uh, you know, when somebody committed to a 12-book series and they die before book 11 comes out, that is just a, it's a tragedy for everybody who put all that time and effort into those books, into reading them, you know, much less the people who were writing them, the people who were editing them, the people who, you know, had made this commitment to go along with this author, and then it just doesn't happen. Uh, and it's never the same when they bring somebody else in to, to write those, the final book, you know. So, like, say, when I was writing my vampire books, I knew exactly how the last one would end. I didn't necessarily know how I was going to get there. And in book two and three, it was still sort of up in the air. But by the time I was sort of closing in, I knew where I needed to go. And I needed, I, I knew exactly what the last page was going to say of the series, right? Uh, and like I say, sometimes that's all you need. You can then walk backwards. But yeah, when you're writing book one, you definitely need to think of it as a standalone book.
0: A question I have is how much a, how much does the business of writing sort of affect how you tell a story? How, how does the idea or how do the thoughts of like are other people going to like this affect storylines? Because I'd imagine that there are some instances where you make a plot point or you make a twist that you would really enjoy. But then perhaps you have to change it thinking that maybe my audience or any other readers may not enjoy this.
1: Well, you kind of have to trust your audience. You have to trust that they like what you're doing, and they will go with you on that road. Um, at the same time, you also do know they're not going to follow you if you go on a complete detour. You know, if, if you decide you're going to go down a side road and never come back to the main story, people are going to be upset about that, and, and rightfully rightly so, you know. Um, I think it's an interesting question because, of course, in an ideal world, you would think, oh, I'm just going to write what I want to write, and who cares, you know? Maybe it succeeds, maybe it fails, and I'm not going to worry about it. Well, you know, I did that for years, and I didn't get published. Um, It was only after I really started to think carefully about what my readers wanted that I got published. And I think that there is... It's such a tricky line because on some level I do want to say don't be afraid to write what you want to write, you know absolutely write what's in your heart. At the same time, you gain so much, you learn so much by writing for an audience. This is a this is a you know writing is entertainment on some level, no matter how abstruse or scholarly or you know. what kind of emotional message your story may hold on some level you're entertaining people. And you wouldn't get up on stage and say you were going to do a magic show and then just do needlework for an hour. People would boo, they would hiss, they would throw things at you. And, you know, and and rightfully so because they, they were promised something. And I think that promising people something making a, a contract with your reader saying, I am going to take care of you. Don't worry. You're going to enjoy this. You're going to have fun. And at the end of the book, you're going to feel satisfied. Uh, I think absolutely is a great spur towards learning how to write effectively, learning how to write, you know, in, in a sort of organic, but also, you know, meaningful fashion and I yeah, like you can hear me hemming and hawing about this, because it's something I, I' worry about a lot, because I often think to myself, "Well, am I writing too much for the market? You know, am I not putting in things and i am, am I censoring myself, which is a problem. Mm-hmm. but at the mm-hmm. same time, mm-hmm. if books are meant to be read, and if if you you know if you a- actively antagonize and push away your audience, That's really not how this is supposed to work.
0: True. So I think at this point I'm going to ask you about how you avoid two common problems that a lot of writers talk about having or a lot of readers recognize. And the first problem I'd like to hear how you avoid is um, not showing the story but rather telling the story and kind of getting trapped in that you know rabbit hole of world building and explanation and how do you avoid doing that especially when you have such a diverse backlog with so many different worlds to explain
1: uh well for one thing you don't worry about it uh and Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds uh flippant but honestly the big show versus tell thing it's a good guideline it is not a hard and fast rule and there are times when you have to show. Uh, there are times when you have to just dump a bunch of exposition on somebody and hope they'll remember it. Um, honestly, yeah, it's all, it's almost always better to tell or – I'm sorry, to show rather than tell. I got that completely backwards. Uh, <laughs> yeah, to show rather than tell. So to dramatize something, to make it a story – rather than just a big dump of uh, uh, info dump of exposition it's almost always the better choice but it takes up a lot of room in your work to actually have people explore a world rather than just describe it could take up an entire book and if you have a story that you mm-hmm. want to tell that is not just about people wandering around the city seeing the sights you know, sometimes yeah, you just gotta you just gotta not worry about it and just put in the exposition. I find that the best way to do that is not to do it in big chunks, but to break it up a lot. Uh, you know, so you give people just the amount of exposition they need when they need it. Uh, it could be one sentence in the middle of a paragraph, or it could be a paragraph in the middle of a, of a chapter. But rather than you know, you don't start out your book with Ten pages on how the world works—you uh, break it up over the course of the book. I find that works pretty well. Uh, the other thing is, there are times when, you know, showing an exposition is absolutely the right way to go for dramatic purposes. There are moments, like think about every, the movies you love. There are there are moments in every movie where there are no actors on screen where the camera is just looking at the landscape or the camera is, you know, watching moth fly around a white bulb or something. Those scenes establish mood, they establish tone, they establish setting and all kinds of things without the use of drama or characters or dialogue. And you can absolutely do that in books as well. You can write a page and a half about, you know, the smell of a a country road after it rains. And if you write it poetically and lyrically enough, people are just going to eat that up. They love that. Even if your, your characters are nowhere on that page, even if there's no dialogue. So, yeah, I think there are ways to do it artfully and carefully uh, that absolutely break all the rules and still work great
0: very great so the uh the second question that i have about you know the second problem rather is how do you go about incorporating you know theme or or sort of like, like a moral theme or something that the reader should take away without it seeming preachy or seeming you know very blunt
1: sure well the best way there is to trust yourself um acknowledge that you believe a certain thing or you want people to know a certain message and assume that it's going to come out in your story without you having to worry about it directly. You know, without you having to throw in a heavy-handed courtroom scene where the lawyer proves that, you know, red is blue and night is day. Um, Oftentimes, as you're writing a story, that theme will emerge on its own quite naturally because of the story you chose to tell, because of the characters that you decided to focus on, those people and those settings and those plot events are going to, you know, uh, vince that message, they're going to invoke, invoke something uh, in a really magical way without you having to directly do it. Now, I know there are some authors who say they never think about theme. They just, they, they think, you know, it's it's death for a book, and it it you, you it turns into a sermon. I don't think that that's uh, necessary for everybody. I know there are some others who start with theme and think I want to write about X. Well, how you know what story can I tell about X? And that works for them. Uh, for me, it's always been more a question of just the characters in my story are going to be exemplars of what I believe or what I want the book to be about, and so I let them kind of show that, you know, become examples of that, and
0: that's how I might my opinion. So to kind of have a bizarre transition, but um, when it comes to writing, say like for ex- example with your Mar- work with Marvel Comics how do you go about telling a story that is in someone else's universe or with someone else's source material? Do you find that kind of, does that sort of fence you in when it comes to creativity? Or do you find that almost as a relief because you don't have that responsibility when it comes to establishing a universe or something like that?
1: Oh, neither. Neither? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> neither. It neither fences me in, nor do I find it a relief. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, to answer the first part, Um, Art is about restrictions, art is about limitations, and you often find that creativity comes about because you are running up against a wall. Like, if you are just writing with no limits, with no strictures, with no guidelines, you'll often find that your work just kind of meanders around for a while and then falls over and dies. It is absolutely the the restrictions that force you to create something interesting. And so working in comics, which is very Mm much where a lot of people have input on what you do. um, Working with those people and finding ways to represent their characters in the way they wanted them represented, but also in a way that allowed me to tell a story I liked was, yeah, it was frustrating at, at times, but it was also just incredibly energizing because I, it just, it gets your juices flowing because you're like, oh, okay, how am I going to do this? Let's think about how I get out of this box. And, yeah, that's the essence of creativity. Now, as to whether it's a relief to work in somebody else's universe, absolutely not. It's, uh, you know, because you still want to do something new. You still want to put your own mark on something, so yeah, you are constantly looking for the the cracks in the walls and the, and the little holes you can climb through, and finding ways to get around what has been done before, because otherwise you're you're telling the same story over and over again, which is no fun.
0: Right. So that so then the last question I'm going to ask for you today. Dave is the purpose of this podcast is to kind of expose to people how to become a better storyteller, whether that be through writing or through, you know, telling stories at the dinner table. So with that in mind, what is what is your advice to somebody who wants to be better at telling a story?
1: Uh, okay, so the first thing is practice.
0: And I don't think that's gonna surprise
1: anybody, but it's absolutely true. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And I find that if you are worried about writing a bad story, go ahead and write the bad story. Go ahead and write ten bad stories. At the end of the ten bad stories, at the very least, you will have learned one thing you should not do. You've learned one thing that doesn't work. Uh, you know, And then you write a hundred bad stories, you'll find something that does work. And it didn't work in that particular story, but you can use it someplace else and so on. So, yeah, the more practice you have, the better you're going to be. There's no, uh, you know, there's no substitute for that. Um, the other thing is to read constantly, to go see as many movies as you can, to experience as much media of every kind, whether you think you're going to like it or not, whether you want to write in that genre or not, uh, because you'll find inspiration everywhere if you're looking for it. You will find lessons everywhere if you are open to them. Uh, But the third thing is, you know, forgive yourself. (laughs) You know, it's it's one way to put it. Just let yourself be a writer. And that means you don't have to think constantly, am I any good at this? You don't have to think, are people going to want to read this? Or you don't have to think, You know, am I wasting my time? The answer to all those questions is is, no. You you just have to sort of allow yourself to be a writer and to write. And if you don't have time, you find time. If you don't have the inspiration, you find the inspiration. Because if this is something you want badly enough, you're just going to do it anyway. And getting... You know, bogged down in thinking that your work is bad or you aren't good enough is what's going to stop you from working. So give yourself permission to write terrible stories. Give yourself permission to write things no one will ever read. Give yourself permission to make mistakes, to screw up. Absolutely, because next time it will be better. And fortunately, it's a process that takes years and years and years to get good at, but hey, in the meantime, you're writing, which is the most incredible thing you can do in the world as far as I'm concerned. So yeah, take the time.
0: All right. Well, thank you so very much for joining me today, Dave. I really appreciate it. And your advice has definitely came on to, uh, it's really helping me with my writing process and I'm sure it's going to help our listeners a lot too. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Noah. I, I absolutely love talking about books and writing, and so it's no, no hard to for me, and I hope I wasn't too long-winded.
0: <laughs> oh, absolutely not. It was all, all interesting, all valuable, and I just have to say, you know, best of luck with your future endeavors. I'm sure there's going to be so many more books and short stories and comics to come. Thanks so much. And that concludes our episode with David Wellington. We want to thank him so much for joining us on this episode of One Thing Led to Another. He gave us wonderful insight as to just the life of a writer and so many tips and tricks on how to tell a great story. So thank you again, David, so much. Um, You can follow him on Twitter at Last Trilobite. That is at L-A-S-T, Trilobite, T-R-I-L-O-B-I-T-E. Also go to his website, and there you can find plenty more tips and tricks when it comes to writing. And do check out his most recent novel, Forsaken Skies. It's written under, under the name D. Nolan Clark. It is a fantastic book. I've read it. It's wonderful. If you love Star Trek or Star Wars or just big, epic, enveloping stories, this is the book for you. So do check it out next week we have an interview with british writer mike cobley he is also a science fiction and fantasy writer and he too gives some wonderful insight on how to handle these massive gigantic stories and plot lines and gigantic worlds so um definitely he is a he is an individual that understands how to how to overcome these massive undertakings and with great success so Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the program, and I hope you'll come back for episodes that are in coming in the very, very near future. So do remember that storytelling is best done together. Drive, walk, run, bike safely, if you're, that's how you're listening to this. And do check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for more updates. This is Noah Finko signing off, and I'll see you next time.